Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent Rowan Garros Classic Podcast. This is your co-host Matt Zemek along with Saka Bali. We hope that you are continuing to stay safe in the middle of a pandemic. And uh, for our American listeners, we also hope that you will be safe in light of what er everything that's going on in the United States. And so we know that there are really important things going on in the world and that talking about French Open memories and, and observations is very trivial compared to everything that's uh, emerging in the world. But, you know, this would be the weekend, the week and weekend uh, with the uh, championships at Roland Garros, uh, championship Saturday for the women, championship Sunday for the men. So we did want to put forth a Roland Garros memories podcast with uh, significant matches, observations from our experts. And so joining us, joining Sakib and myself uh, to reminisce and provide some big picture historical analysis, Mert Ertunga, you know him at Murtov's T-Desk on, on Twitter, uh, and he, he writes for his own blog site, as well as contributing to tennis with an accent. When, when tennis gets back into the swing of things, Mert will be contributing to us. We look forward to that day. But right now we have Mert on to uh, look back at the evolution of Roland Garros, the evolution of clay court tennis, mostly for the women in the open era. And so, Mert, as we welcome you on to the show, just, just start with some general big picture observations you have gleaned from women's tennis over time uh, in the open era at Roland Garros. What are some of the, the, the main points that we're going to draw upon and, and uh, get more details on as our conversation goes along? Hi, hello everyone. Uh, delighted to be here. And uh, yes, Matt. Uh, uh, frankly, the the evolution of uh, of the game on the women's side runs a little bit parallel to to that of the men's side, but uh, with with nuances being uh, being uh, you know being that uh, there's perhaps more of a variety of game being used on the women's side. If you take all of the open air in its ensemble, all the way from uh, you know the first French Open in the late six in the late sixties all the way to today. But to give a general sense, it, uh, you know, we start out in the late 60s, early 70s with, with, a, with a slew of uh, mostly attacking type of players who, um, who have, um, uh, you know, who win uh, at the French Open, uh, not necessarily all serving volleyers, but mostly net court-based players winning. And then, and, then, and, then be, and then we get to Chris Everett's uh, entrance to the scene in the in the mid-70s and she takes over for a few years until Martina Navratilova's arrival and we have those two that rivalry dominating not only uh, Roland Garros but uh, the world of tennis and during that rivalry the the game style of those two players kind of represent the general mix of the players too you have attackers serving volleyers and baseliners uh, you know, on on uh, who are winning French Open or reaching the finals, semifinals, and then towards the end of that rivalry comes uh, Steffi Graf, and then a little bit later Monica Seles, and from that point on, you start you start seeing a dominance of mostly baseline players taking over at the French Open. In other words, either um, you know attacking baseliners or just simply ralliers. Not that uh, they're all afraid to go to the net or anything, but net play becomes uh, of little um, consequence. You don't you don't have many serving volleyers anymore, or natural net attackers being successful at the Roland, at Roland Garros anymore. And then comes to, and then come the two thousands, 
beginning of the 2000s, you have a hard-hitting baseline game taken over with some variety players from the baseline also still having a say in it. In other words, these are both, both groups that I just mentioned. They're not net game-based players, mostly baseliners, but what one group is rather a hard-hitting, strictly baseline play, uh, category, and the other is a still baseline player, mostly will come to the net if the opportunity presents, but mostly have a variety on their game. That's the general outlook. And so, you know, in terms of looking back at matches, women's matches at Roland Garros over the years, what are some of the turning points? I mean, I know that before we came on the air, Mert, um, you, uh, you know, out, made a, an outline of some of the matches that stick out in your mind, not, not just for their quality, but in terms of the players who were involved in the matches and how those, those matches, in terms of the players involved, represented transitional moments in the open era at Roland Garros. So what are some of your highlights there? Yeah, so for example, we began with, uh, you know, the, we begin the period with um, with the uh, the period before the Everett Navratilova rivalry, so to speak, you know, during which you have Billie Jean King, Ivan Gulagong, and Margaret Court, uh, who win uh, the first five or six French Opens in a row. And uh, maybe not all of them, but most of them. And, and they're, they're mostly attacking style players, serving volleys. Margaret Court was not necessarily all serving volley. She could, she could also stay back and, and use variety, but Billie Jean King, but she also, she also could attack or serve in volley when needed to. Billie Jean King is more, more of a serving volleyer. And then Chris Everett arrives uh, in, in the scene. And I think the, 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 her arrival is not, is not necessarily the first tournament that she wins in 1974, but the one where she loses to Margaret Court 6-4 in the third as an 18-year-old. And uh, she actually leads that match 7-6-5-3 and uh, has a serve forward at 5-4 and is, and again, two points away from the match in the tiebreaker of the second set. And that's the, that's the signal that uh, you, you can have a solid baseline player uh, who also has touched Chris Everett had great drop shot by the way that that's that's quite overlooked a lot of times but she starts dominating the French Open so I would count that sign 1973 is a turning point where a, a pure baseliner comes in and starts winning the tournament and then you have uh, and then you have a little bit later uh, Martina Navratilova who arrives on scene actually the in 1975 she's already she already loses to Chris Everett in the finals. But then in the 1980s, she takes over, as well as the rivalry between the two of them, Navratilova and Everett. And during the 80s, you have still pure baseliners like Chris Everett uh, and Andre Yeager, who are in the finals and rally back and forth. And then you have uh, you know, Navratilova and players like her, who are mostly attackers. So therefore, out of, out of those finals, I would go all the way down to 1987, where Steffi Graf comes on scene and beats Navratilova 8-6 in the third in a terrific match, 1987 French Open final. And that's Graf's entrance into the, uh, into the scene at, the, at Roland Garros and basically the end of Navratilova-Everett rivalry. It's the last time Navratilova is in the finals in that. And, um, and then I would, call, I would call both 1990 and 1992 finals between Graf and Celis, both won by Monica Celis, as crucial because if you look at those two finals, Sakib and Matt, 1990 and 1992, there's a quite a big difference in, 
in the tempo of the rallies, in other words, in the speed of the ball being hit, 1992 is a much harder hitting final than 1990 is. So those two finals looked, you know, watched together is a contrast. And then I would mention 1999 Graf versus Hingis, big final due to the controversy about the line call, but also because it is the last final between two players whose games are not founded on hard-hitting power. The next three years, you have Mary Pierce, Jennifer Capriati, and Serena Williams winning the French Open, and they're, they're mostly baseline power hitters. And from that point forward, with the exception of maybe one or two finals until today, you have at least one finalist, if not both, who ride on baseline power as their A plan. And uh, it, and out of the, out of the very recent ones, I would I would count 2013 Serena's win over Sharapova. It's important because it was the first time Serena won French Open since 2002, and it signals her dominance back on clay courts too. And it comes at a time where some people were questioning if she could ever win French Open again. And, uh, and, and here's a last interesting note before I turn it over to you guys. Uh, the last two years that it was played, 2018 and 2019, those two finals could belong to this conversation if we have this podcast again in five or ten years because both could, be, could end up being the breakthrough titles for Simona Halep and Ash, Ashley Barty on the way to all-time greatness. That's yet to be seen. You know, that's something that we'll have to take up in the future. Sure. Yeah, so Mert. Go ahead, Sakib. No, I was just going to, yeah, uh, put in there. I mean, you covered quite a ground there and that I'm sure Matt has a lot of questions and I have a couple. So where would Arantxa Sanchez's style of play fit in uh, in the category of uh, powerful baseliners or the style of play you describe? Because she did have a lot of say in that decade with Steffi and Monica. She appeared, she won, I think, three Roland Garros, played another final or two. Where would you rank her in terms of the style of play and was she... Uh, more of a player from an era before with a great footwork, if she was not taking the power tennis forward? Uh, elaborate on that. No, it's, it's a great question. And Arantxa Sanchez Vicario, in my, in my opinion, and people may disagree with this, but one of the top 10 all-time greatest clay court players in the open era on the women's side, in, a, in my opinion. And I would certainly rank her one of the best movers on clay courts, one of the top three or top five movers on clay courts in terms of getting two balls and quick movement in place. She was super speedy. But to, to understand her situation better, we need to clarify the term pure baseliner, right? We're, we're not talking about just defensive players whose, whose biggest asset is their ability to scramble and use their uh, superior leg speed just to run everything down and get it back. Now, are there some of those? And they, are they successful? Yes. And Sanchez Vicaria is one of them. You know, now does, that doesn't mean that, uh, you know, she's unbeatable. That's not true. But she was that player that you mentioned who was a baseliner. I don't know if she, she belonged to the pure baseliners in the previous era because she hit with more topspin than a lot of the baseliners that came before her. So I would, I would call her somewhere between the, the, the pure baseliners of the, of the previous era and the more topspin clay court, harder hitters of the next era. She was a mix in between, but nonetheless, she was a very successful baseline player. In the same vein, in the same vein as Simona Halep, I would put her in the same vein as Simona Halep. You know, Simona's career is not finished, but they're the same type of player. Super speedy, super fast, getting a lot of balls back, 
can attack if needed to, can accelerate if needed to, but that is not their plan A. Okay, got it. So, uh, Matt, go ahead. Uh, you had a question too. <laughs> yeah, so Mert, uh, I was fascinated by your point that the uh, 1992 Groff Celis Roland Garros final had a much faster pace to the hitting and the rallies than 1990. What, what would you assign to that difference? One could say that there was a, were there developments in technology, racket technology at the time? Was it also an awareness of, you know, the, the, the Capriati Celis uh, 1991 U.S. Open semifinal really captured the tennis community's attention in terms of the power and the ferocity of the rally. So was, was the 92 final partly built on an awareness from both players that they simply had to come with the heat right away. And, and if they didn't, they were overpowered and that, you know, recent matches uh, kind of made, impressed upon uh, women's tennis players at the time that they just had to hit harder. Uh, was it, was it something other than what I've mentioned? What would you say was responsible for that? Yeah, a little bit of, a little bit of what you said and a little bit of other factors. Uh, you know, the, this is the time when uh, racket technology is fast changing uh, we were getting to, uh, to, to, to more powerful mixture or ingredients in, in, in constructing a tennis racket. Also, balls are, 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 are perhaps changing. And uh, we're just simply getting to stronger, uh, you know, physically stronger players who are in the game. You know, we, the, 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 not Martina Navratilova, for example, uh, is the first player who visibly, you know, right in, in front of everyone's eyes, uh, got stronger physically, paid attention to to her off court training, and and uh, really became a much stronger presence on the court physically, and and, and perhaps therefore more resistant. And uh, and when you see 1990 Monica Seles and Steffi Graf play, one is one is 20 years old, um, I believe. Steffi Graf was 20 years old at the time, and and Monica Seles was 16, if I'm if I'm correct, uh, in that final in 1990. Uh, and and then so so that you have that factor too in 1992 when they play two years later, Matt, they they're stronger. You know they've had two more years to develop. Monica is now 18 years old and Steffi is 22 years old. They're a little bit more seasoned. Monica especially is more seasoned in 1992. Steffi Graf was already seasoned in terms of uh, performing in the in the in the majors. But you had they're physically stronger, so it's a, it has a little bit to do with the two of them, but it also has to do with racket technology getting better and uh, people having to adjust to just uh, harder-hitting players in the years after. And I would like to add something for that final, again, not in the terms of what uh, Mert can uh, attribute to from the technical point, but I think that match had a bigger narrative. Celis had somewhat started solving Graph, and she came in uh, as a winner of last year's US Open and and that year's Australian Open. So she was riding a two-slam uh, hot streak, and Steffi Graf hadn't won a slam. And that match had its own narrative, and especially it was in clay. So I remember that. That's I think that still ranks as one of the best uh, French Open final men or women I've seen in my you know tennis uh, tennis journey as a fan. So yeah, that that final was special. Uh, I don't know if that makes any sense, but I think that the rivalry yes, was and, heating and, up in that final. No, for sure, uh, Sakib, you're right, and and even the one in in 1990, right? That was uh, that was Monica Seles' first first major final, and that was uh, Steffi Graf's 13th major final, and yet Monica Seles comes in and, and wins, and and it and it's a very interesting match because 
being 16 and being for the first time in the, in the finals of a major, there were a couple of times where she could have easily uh, gagged uh, under pressure or gotten nervous. And she did get nervous at one point, 5-3 in the first set leading. But then she buckles down and comes back from four set points down to win the first set tiebreaker and, uh, and, and finishes in a flurry in the very last game, breaking graph. They're almost like if she was a seasoned player at 26 years old rather than 16. And the year before, uh, if you remember, she stretched Steffi in the semifinals. They, that went three as well. So they have quite a history at French That's Open. correct. You're talking about, you know, the evolution of the game. I'm sure Matt has more questions, but if you uh, explain it to me, uh, you know, there are different types of power baseliners. How would you distinguish, say, a Mary Pierce uh, from, you know, someone like uh, Steffi Graf? If, uh, will they both be power baseliners? Uh, are they mixing it up? They're playing a different brand of tennis. Is one strike tennis an option back then when these girls were hitting the ball so hard? Well, yes. Uh, you know, Monica Sellers actually is the one to 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 start that. And lo and behold, you know, the match that we were just talking about. Oh, I would just advise anybody to go and watch the very first game of the 1990 final, where Monica Sellers does first strike tennis. At its best, just takes the return and hits the winner right away. And yes, Mary Pierce, for example, the player that you just mentioned, uh, is a very, uh, very valid one-strike player argument to be made there. And uh, she she could she could whack the ball uh, from anywhere on the court for a winner, you know. And Capriati could too. And then Serena, uh, uh, of course, can to even today. And you have Pierce, Capriati, and Serena winning. You know the first three years of the at the turn of the decade, and, uh, and then you're thinking, well, you know what? This is the time of the of the harder hitter players uh, dominating tennis now because uh, we don't you don't have Steffi Graf anymore, Martina Hingis is not is not winning anymore, and uh, and and you got Mary Pierce, Capriati, and Williams three years in a row. Well, yes, after that you still had a player like Anastasia Miskina, you still had Skiavone, you still had Svetlana Kuznetsova who are not necessarily one-strike hitters, but variety from the baseline, get a lot of balls back. And if you get the chance, attack type of players, all three of those have a lot of variety in their game, but they're not power hitters. But you take out, you take out those three, the rest of the way you have mostly power hitters who, who keep winning all the way down to 2017 with Yelena Ostapenka. And this is why I would argue now not knowing the future i would speculate let me call it speculate rather than argue but i would speculate that ashley barty's victory triumph in 2019 was very important uh, for to open the eyes of maybe young younger players who are coming up because now they can say well okay so you don't have to be a brutal baseliner to win at the french you can have variety you can have touch and you can be physically not necessarily you know five eleven six foot tall in order to win uh, the French Open, you can do it, and that's what I, that's why I think Ashley Barty's win in the future, when we look back, will be an important one in terms of uh, new player develop, new players developing. Uh, we've been talking. I mean, in, in your in your recent statements, Merton, flowing from Sockett's question, uh, there was a lot of talk about late nineteen nineties, early two thousands tennis. So I'm going to go back a few decades. Uh, now I know we're kind of hopping around, but we're trying to get a feel for various players throughout the open era. So I'm going to go back to the uh, late 1970s, Mert. Yes. Uh, you had mentioned off the air before we, we we started the broadcast 
uh, a few players that a lot of younger tennis fans might never have heard of, Janet Newberry and Florenta Mihai. Tell us a little bit uh, about those two players and and how they fit into the larger story that we're talking about with styles of play on the women's side. Yeah, you know, Janet Newberry actually never made the final in the French Open, but she did make the semifinals twice in the late 70s. And yes, she's a very, very little known player, but she had a classic style uh, play, one grip on all shots type of player, which, you know, we there, there were a lot of them in the 60s and early 70s. And Janet Newberry, with that game, was still able to make in the late 70s French Open semifinals twice, which would be unheard of today. I, I don't know how many people could possibly even fathom that uh, a player like that can make it uh, in the middle of, of the power players. It's, it's not possible. Even, even if they had access to today's technology, I'm not sure that a player like that at the French Open could make it, could make it to the semifinals in the middle of all the power, power returners, one-shot uh, winners, uh, big forehands, et cetera, et cetera. And then, and then you also had a player like Fiorenta Mihai, who uh, who was who was a strictly a clay court player. She went to the she went to the semifinals uh, and and finals two years in a row in at the French Open. And she doesn't go past second round in any of the other majors or hasn't done anything of of uh, of great um, uh, notice during her career. But she did go to the semifinals of the of Roland Garros and to the finals two years in a row. And from Romania, player from Romania that hardly anyone's heard of, but that that goes to show you, players like that go to show you that Roland Garros is is open to players like that. At the French Open, players who specialize in in certain style can be successful, but at the same time, uh, back then, back in those years, before the power hitters took over, a player like Janet Newberry could also reach the uh, semifinals twice and 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 still be fine. And you know one thing that uh, that that I should uh, insert here, you know, we're talking about the Roland Garros is unique in this in the sense that uh, uh, we often discuss, you know, surface becoming slower. Correct. I mean, at Wimbledon or at uh, hard courts, et cetera. There's this general talk about the trend of surfaces going slower. And uh, and uh, although at the French Open, the days of the natural volleyer or, you know, not serving volleyer necessarily, those are gone, that's for sure, at the French Open. But the day of the natural volleyer still being able to win Roland Garros or even to make the semis or arguably even the second week may virtually be over. But notice that this is not due to surface change over time. In other words, Roland Garros has not gotten slower over time. That's not why. The clay is not slower. Roland Garros conditions, anyway, have a history of largely depending on the weather for that day in question in terms of how fast the court plays or how fast the ball travels through the air or bounces. So it's not the surface. But it does say, however, a lot about the advances in equipment technology, changes in the makeup of the tennis ball, and shows that the, the, those trends have been in ways that favor power baseliners although it still leaves room for defensive rallies to be successful at Roland Garros, but clearly puts those who base their game on an all-around plan A with approaching the net at a disadvantage. I hope I made that nuance clear, I'm, uh, uh, but uh, yeah. Sure. Hey, now, Mert, this, this thought just occurred to me, and it's not really about players so much as eras at Roland Garros. 
And that is that, you know, when recalling the er matches from the early 1980s, when I was a little boy growing up, you know, it occurs to me that the, the end, the north end of Chatrier was open. You know, they had a, a, they had like a grandstand, maybe akin to what you see at Monte Carlo, um, on the, on the, the, to the sides of Monte Carlo. Um, but like there, what there was, there weren't two decks. There was just one deck. And I, and I distinctly remember Mert having a conversation with you on this podcast about how the, the roof and the overhang at Arthur Ashe stadium really changed the dynamic of play at the U S open, you know, compared to when it was an open bowl. So when Shakri just had one set of stands at the North end, uh, was, was, was there a lot more wind involved in matches? And was that a reason why, uh, players with more classical styles, such as Janet Newberry and others, uh, were able to go deeper into that tournament in the late 1970s? Did the layout of Chatrier at the time have anything to do with those results? Do you think? I don't, I don't think so, Matt, because, um, uh, if you, th if you think about it, Chatrier, and it used to be called Cour Central was before it was named Chatrier, it has had always had windy days and uh, there, there are there are many finals uh, that have been that have been played under strong wind and i don't know that a, i don't think that a player back then uh, had any more advantage or less advantage because one side of one side of Chatrier course central had a shorter uh, stance than than the other did compared to today being much taller i i don't think that makes a difference Sure. Uh, actually, it can be a segue to some of the questions I may have for you, but Mert can start. So uh, it's no secret to anyone who's watching tennis today uh, on the men's side and women's side, it's very hard to be an attacking player. Of course, the game has changed. But how special is Martina Navratilova's two French Open titles, Mert? I mean, put that in context. I know she's a legend, and a lot of times we take all these legends for granted, and her record is immaculate. She's done everything you can do on a tennis court, singles, doubles, mixed. Uh, but let's talk about her attacking play and how difficult it is, even with that style, to succeed on Coach Central. Yes, one thing that uh, that somewhat get overlooked overlooked today is that Navratilova actually went to the finals of uh, French Open in 1975, and she lost to Chris Everett then. And it took her all the way till 1982, seven years later, to finally grab her first title at the French Open. So we're looking at a long-term process or, or long-term gritty work collecting its fruits so many years later. And, uh, and, and, you know, again, I would encourage people to find clips of Martina Navratilova in the 70s and then find clips of her in the 80s and look at the difference how much importance she put into physically getting stronger and uh, and 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 simply developing her shots and and, and power in general. No, I'm not talking about just you know forehand or serve power, but rather first step quickness and and just physically getting more um, in tune with uh, with or, or coming to the realization that it's not just skills what you do with the racket, but also what you do physically that makes a that makes a difference. And she's really revolutionary in that sense so when you and she's able to do that now she's able to pull that possibly against the best clay court open era player of all times because because chris everett has a has a, has a clear dominance uh at, at roland garros even when martin navratilova starts to 
level the rivalry and starts to get the upper hand, Chris Everett still holds fourth at, uh, at, uh, at the French Open. And in fact, even with Navratilova winning those two titles, Chris Everett still beats Navratilova in their last two finals at the French Open, 85 and 86. Chris Everett wins those, both of them in three sets. So you have to understand that she's able to pull that off, you know, win those two titles you just mentioned against the best competition anyone may have faced on clay court at the French Open in, uh, in the Open era. So there's a lot to be said there because it's not just uh, overcoming a, a, a specific player, but also uh, revolutionizing the game and the approach to the game, the mental approach and the preparation to the game. Sure, let me... Uh, yeah, go ahead. Finish your thought, please. No, I was going to say, I mean, uh, whenever we lead into, into the men's side, uh, you, you, could, you could almost pull a parallel bet between that and Ivan Lendl, you know, the, his approach to the game. Well, that's a very valid point. I was actually doing a comparison in my mind uh, with McEnroe because they both were playing the serve and volley game and how uh, flawless of a year McEnroe had in 84 when he reached that final and led two sets to love. So I'm sure Matt has something to say about both Navratilo and Everett and then Lendl McEnroe. So Matt, let me uh, ask you this. Uh, what are your memories of uh, some of those Martina and Chris Everett finals at Roland Garros? And how did you consume that as a young tennis fan? And how do you process uh, those classics now as a, a tennis writer? Well, you know, the, the, the foremost thought about the Everett Navratilova Roland Garros finals, it's part of a larger story which is evolving today uh, among the big three. And that is that, you know, the, the French Open is unique and, and Wimbledon too, because the two of them come one month apart. So if, a, if an elite tennis player suffered a crushing loss at Roland Garros, he or she would then come to Wimbledon with a lot of pressure and a lot to prove. And so I'm struck by how, you know, I'm struck by the interplay of these Roland Garros and Wimbledon tournaments for the elite players because, uh, you know, there was an awareness on Everett's part that Martina was the huge favorite at Wimbledon, so she would have to deliver the goods at Roland Garros. I mean, it's a lot like Nadal, you know, having to knowing that you know either Djokovic or Federer was probably going to be in the driver's seat at Wimbledon, so he had to hold down the four at Roland Garros, and then the pressure would shift the other way at Wimbledon. So, um, you know, I, I, it, at, the more I reflect on the Open era at Roland Garros on the women's side. It's hard to come up with a more significant match, and specifically the result, than the 1985 final in which Everett won 7-5 in the third, three close sets. Uh, you think about that match coming on the heels of Navratilova uh, beating Everett on Super Saturday at the U.S. Open and, and still being at the height of her powers. Uh, the, on, in that, and, and, and Navratilova beat Everett handily in the 1984 Rowan Garros final. So in that 1985 final, it was a moment for Chris Everett to stand her ground and remind herself, Martina, and the world that she was still the best on clay. And for her to win that match in and of itself, but also the way she did it, you know, it was a, it was a razor's edge match the whole way through. Um, that might very well be her greatest single match victory of all time. And, and so that seems hyperbolic or, or it might seem hyperbolic in a 
career with so many different kinds of achievements. But really, if you're if you're going to com- compile a list of Chris Everett's greatest single match victories, that has to be in the top three for sure. Yes, that was a terrific match, uh, uh, Matt. You're right, and and yeah, you summarize it very well. The, the Super Saturday, and and also Martina beat Chris Everett, Chris Everett um, in 1984, the year before, at on at the French. So you're right. She she needed to hold down that fort in 1985, and she did. Hey, Mark, I, you know, Sakib, I know we're going to get to the men's side very shortly, but I have to ask Mert this question uh, about Roland Garros, and it's not about Everton Navratilova, it's, it's more general. Um, was there a women's player? Uh, you know, think, think about, for example, where our, our audience can consider this example. You know, Andy Roddick was born a few years uh, too late. If, if Andy Roddick had been born five years earlier, you know, so that his prime at Wimbledon would have been the late 90s and early 2000s. He probably walks away with three or four Wimbledons. But no, he came of age right when Federer was also coming of age. So he was misplaced by like four or five years. So as we think about women's players at Roland Garros who didn't didn't win a title or didn't win lots of titles, what 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 is an example in your mind of a women's player who was either a few years too early or a few years too late, who just missed the sweet spot relative to her playing style, relative to the competition, relative to the racket technology, the ball speed, anything. Who's a player on the women's side who just missed the window? And if she had had a prime three or four years different, uh, could have won a few more tiles and made a much larger impression on the pages of tennis history. Yes, I, I, I'm going to go with a very, t- very, very, very talented shot maker who was born straight or whose, whose prime years coincides straight with the Everett Navratilova rivalry, and that's Hanna Mandlikova uh, from Czechoslovakia at the time. And uh, she was a player who, in my, uh, in my opinion, just like you said, would have had would have done a lot more damage at Roland Garros than the one title that she won in 1981. She she went to the semifinals four other times and quarterfinals three other times, and she did that from 1979 to 1986. So we're talking about seven years in a row. That window right in the thick of the Everett Navratilova rivalry, and right when they were at their best and and dominating back and forth, and she, and each time she ran into one of those players. And the couple of one of those two players, you know, in the semifinals, either to Chris Ever to to Navratilova, and then the one year that she breaks through was 1981, where where she won the French Open. You know, that was the one year that she was able to break through. She actually beats Chris Evert in the semifinals in that year, and, and Navratilova happens to lose to Sylvia Hanika back in the quarterfinals. So she has to beat only Chris Evert and then beats Sylvia Hanika to win the to win the 1981 Roland Garros. Now she also won you know, uh, uh, the U.S. Open title. So she, she's she's a very talented player who not only at the French Open, but career-wise would have had a lot bigger numbers had she been born or had she entered her prime five years earlier or five years later with the with the stronger technology too. She had to play most of her matches with a wooden racket. And then we're talking about a shot maker here who could hit the one-handed drive winner as nice as, you know, we're... The modern in the modern times we talk about Justin and Enns, one-handed backhand uh, drive. 
Well, Hanuman Likova could, could nail that one-handed backhand drive with a wooden racket. So imagine what she could have done five years later at her prime, late 80s to early 90s, had she been able to play, you know, in the, in the Graf Celis area. Speaking of Justin, and, and I just want to insert one thing, because we cannot talk about everything. So this, this, this was going to get left out, and I don't want it to get left out. Just I want to mention two sentences. We're talking, you know, Justin Enan deserves at least a mention if we're going to talk about French Open, uh, uh, the Open era. Uh, what she has accomplished in the mid-2000s is, is phenomenal from 2003 to 2007, winning four out of five French Opens. The only player during the Serena Williams dominance era who established some type of control on a, on a given slam or on a given surface. What well, was her during those years? And uh, if I may add, I think the question was for uh, Mert. But Matt, uh, to both of you, I would say uh, I, I saw some uh, tail end of Hannah Madlikova, but I think Gabriela Sabatini's five semifinals at French Open are very noteworthy. And I'm not sure, uh, you know, because she 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 was also known uh, to get you know a little choky at times. Uh, served for the Wimbledon title. And, of course, uh, she was not in the same league as Monica Seles and Steffi Graf. But that's another a classic example of a player who was good in clay. I believe she won 11 or 12 tour titles or maybe even more. And five outings of the French semi. I think she deserves an honorable mention in, in, uh, in my view. Not sure, uh, you know, she, was, she would have won the French Open in any other era because that's always subjective. But I think uh, her game and uh, the back end today, we marvel at Stan Wawrinka. Very much a technical similarity there. So yeah, she could play on clay, and is uh, you know too bad she didn't even have a Roland Garros final. But that's how these tough uh, these uh, Grand Slams are. I couldn't agree more. She definitely deserves that level of recognition. So if uh, we have covered, I think uh, quite a few notes and quite a, a few players and playing styles. So if we switch to the men, and Mert, you can join me too. So I know Matt uh, has always talked about the Lendl-McEnroe final. In so many ways, it opened the floodgates for Ivan Lendl. And in so many ways, it deprived John McEnroe of a uh, you know, solo win at French Open. And uh, he never made the French final again. And it was uh, such a significant match in terms of how tennis history is viewed. Uh, everybody knows Lendl-McEnroe were arch rivals. But Matt, just uh, walk us through what that final means in, in the grand scheme of things at French Open and in just pure greatness for the men's tennis uh, that was at its peak in the 80s with the trifecta of uh, uh, Connors, uh, McEnroe, and Lendl joining them. Well, you know, so the thing that, that strikes me about 84 Lendl McEnroe at Roland Garros so many years later is just how much it branches out into the rest of open-era men's tennis history, and not just at, at the French, but just in general. There are so many compelling stories, so, so many compelling dramas throughout the open era of men's tennis at all the majors of one player, you know, succeeding on multiple surfaces or at multiple majors, but having that elusive major. So for Yvonne Lendl, it was Wimbledon. For Bjorn Borg, it was the U.S. Open. Um, you know, we saw Roger Federer, you know, need several years to finally track down Roland Garros. Same for Djokovic. Um, so, you know, these, these, these hunts, these journeys, these quests, for that elusive major, so this was this was McEnroe's story, and this was you know obviously by far the most poignant and heartbreaking miss for him. But this has you know reverberations elsewhere. 
And another reverberation through another part of the era is that um, when when John McEnroe, John McEnroe was on the other side of a dynamic. Um, John McEnroe beat Bjorn Borg at the 1981 U.S. Open, and that was you know that was Borg's last great hurrah uh, in, in terms of trying to win you know the major that he had been chasing for a long time, and so. Just a few years later, who who would have known? Who would have predicted that McEnroe would flame out relatively early in his career, much as Borg did uh, at the end of 1981? You know, he didn't didn't play in in uh, 1982 at the majors. So you know, it, it we we had seen Borg's uh, career die out far earlier than we had than many predicted or had hoped, and yet. In, in 84, and obviously McEnroe continued to be great in 84 specifically. He was 82 and three that year. He actually beat Lendl in that year's U.S. Open final. But, you know, one year later, McEnroe, McEnroe's career was largely spent. And it's just such a haunting uh, thing to to gr- absorb all these years later that, that you know, if, if this match goes the other way, if McEnroe doesn't blow that two-set lead and he wins Roland Garros, adds that to his trophy collection, would, would we have seen the downward trajectory in McEnroe's career in the second half of the 1980s? Uh, you know, I, I, I do think it would have been very different. And if it had been different, what would that have done? What, what ripple effect would that have had for the players who stepped into McEnroe's identity in the late 1980s, and that being Boris Becker and Stefan Edberg, they they took the torch from McEnroe. What if McEnroe had kept that torch instead of passing it along? It just there, there's just so many ways in which that 1984 Lendl McEnroe final changed the course of tennis history and how we think about the various great tennis players of the era. Well, that's a very uh, uh very profound from your part because uh, that match has such a great significance and uh, there's other ripple effect is what would have happened to Lendl had he lost uh, to McIndoe uh, on clay, uh, which he almost did. So, uh, Murd, let, let me bring you in for this. I know we've been talking about the attacking play in various styles. Lendl was the first power player. And again, we've called him father of power tennis between the three of us and Andrew in our discussion and some of the previous podcasts. Uh, how would you compare him to classic clay court players like Borg or even some of those, the Spanish guy or the Panadas or Nastasi. How was Lendl different on clay? He didn't have much of a topspin forehand. His backhand, you know, had a topspin which was ahead of his time. So try to break down his game on clay. I know in the last podcast we spoke briefly about clay being his best surface. Talk along those lines and what you had done for the women's uh, in the earlier section of the podcast. Yes, yes, I, we did talk about that last time. And just to just to clarify, Matt, to you also, you weren't in the last, last podcast. We, uh, Saqib and I had a discussion back and forth. You know, one of us thought Clay was his best surface. I did because he, you know, he, earlier in his career, that's where he got, he got his best results. And his game was founded on Clay. I felt, but Saqib felt that he was a better hardcore player, which I thought he had a, he had a very good uh, argument for that Towards too. Towards the end of So okay. that's, yeah. Right, that's what that's what Saqib's referring to, and uh, and in terms of uh, you know Lendl's game, yes, no, he's not uh, he's not the same as um, as the nineteen seventies baseline players. It's certainly not based on touch. 
you know, his, his game was not based on touch, although later in his career he developed a backhand slice, uh, a good backhand slice, I should say, not that he didn't have one to begin with. In fact, he sliced a lot early in his career, but it was kind of a floating type of slice. Later in his career, he started hitting more of a sizzling type of slice or inside-out slice, even drop shot some. And uh, so he developed it. But but overall, here's another guy who who developed his game as his body developed. And and if you get a chance, you know, go 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 watch maybe even one set of, of his final again, his first final at Roland Garros in 1981 against Bjorn Borg, the one he lost in five sets. And his he, he looks physically nothing like he looked just three years later in 1984 against John McEnroe, uh, you know, at the, at the French Open when he won. And we're talking about a transformation within two or three years. And then, and then later, in, you know, later in his career, later in the 80s, he was able to keep up with the, with the, in, with the influx of, uh, you know, bigger and stronger players because he was physically uh, so well-developed and, and it took, you know, off-court training very seriously. And then he's the guy who introduced that... Uh, that whole idea to to men's tennis, <clears throat> also. So game wise, no, he was mostly a power player, big forehand. He can hit topspin. He wasn't all, he wasn't an all flat hitter. He, he definitely had topspin, but uh, but he could also flatten his forehand out on on a high ball as well as on a low ball. And he had kind of a slap type of shot, which which led with his elbow back on the forehand side, and it was just. Uh, brutal, uh, very scary. I mean, he's he he he, he was known to hit, to nail his opponents in the head when they were at the net and they didn't volley well. If they popped a volley up, I mean, he would just come in and just slam that forehand right at them. Uh, you can ask Vita, I mean, well, the late Vitas Gerolaitis would tell you a lot about that, but uh, uh, he's, he was one of the victims of uh, some of uh, Landel's hard forehands right to the body. And uh, But his backhand had a great topspin. He had a terrific first serve, won a lot of points on, her for, on his first serve, but, but didn't venture up to the net much. He was mostly a baseline player. He just did everything more powerfully and, 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 and with more force than the other baseliners of his time. Sure. When you're talking about some of the great finals, and, uh, and, and you guys can jump into it. I don't want to keep driving. This is a free-for-all conversation because we have a loose agenda here. Uh, so the question for both of you, uh, like you mentioned, Justine Anna, no conversation without a French Open. Again, we are talking the before Nadal years because this past 14, 15 years are just ridiculous. Uh, before that, we have to mention Mark Spielander. In what context? He won the same number of titles as Lendl. Both made five finals and both are three and two. So who wants to go first and talk about what are the, some, some of the Spielander memories? And in some way, where do you rank his achievements? I know this is a slight deviation, but he has to be mentioned. I'll start and Matt, you can, I'll, I'll, stay, I'll say something quite short in the, in the very beginning, early in his career. And uh, Matt, you can jump in after that. Um, I, uh, I watched Bjorn Borg's last tournament win at the uh, Martini Open in Geneva in 1981. He lost in the finals to McEnroe uh, at the U.S. Open. And one week later, he came to Geneva and played the clay court tournament. Martini Open, it was called back then. And then he won the title beating... Um, Thomas Schmidt, of, uh, or was it Balas Tarocci? I, anyway, he, Thomas Schmidt. I think he beat Thomas Schmidt in the final. Anyway, in that tournament, Bjorn Borg in the second round beat a young Mats Willander 6-1, 6-1. Kind of blew him off the court. 
And nobody thought twice about it. I certainly didn't. I watched the match live. I was there in Geneva. I watched the whole tournament. And, uh, and, and I didn't think twice about it. Uh, you know, it was there for as far as we went back then, it was just Bjornborg and the rest of the Swedes. And that was one of the, the rest of the Swedes, the young ones. And uh, I watched the match. Borg just completely erased them off the court, 6-1, 6-1. And that was in 1981, September. And Mats Wielander wins French Open in 1982, June, beginning June. And I'm thinking, how did this guy get this good in a, in a matter of, uh, in a matter of uh, seven or eight months? And uh, anyway, that's, you know, he beat Guillermo Vilas, a very seasoned uh, player who was having one of the best years of his life, uh, of his career on, on clay. Was late, late in his career, but he was having one of the best years. It was a stunning upset, Wielander beating Vilas in the final, let alone him beating Lendl earlier in the tournament. But that's my memory of Wielander that I can never get... Uh, off my mind. He beat Lendl, Jose Luis Clerc, and Guillermo Villas in the finals to win the French Open seven or eight months after he looked really like a third-class player against Bjorn Borg. And he was 17 or 18? He was, I believe, 18. Oh. I'll have to, I'll, I'll look it up quickly, but I think uh, he was either 17 or 18 when he first won the French. He was born in August 64. So when he won 1982, no, he, he was still 17, not yet turned 18. So about three 17-year-old won majors in the 80s, Willander, Becker, and yeah. Chang, huh? <laughs> it's never going to happen again. <laughs> Matt, do you have a Willander uh, story? If not, we can definitely, you know, catch on to some of the Americans who won. So as we keep the conversation going forward. Well, I think that the, uh, the, the fact about Matt's Willander, which is still hugely impressive and i think it may not necessarily overlooked but it just you know there are some facts that okay intellectually you know they're extremely impressive but they either don't get talked about a lot or it just doesn't seem to resonate or penetrate extremely deeply with the public so that fact with matt's Velander, he won three majors in a year and it doesn't seem to have the weight or resonance that it should that 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 just seems to be my impression that in the midst of becker and edberg and lendl uh and, and others who were very much in their prime or just entering their prime in 1988 you have vlander winning three of the four majors and of course one of them was uh at roland garros and so many of vlander's contemporaries were not able to do that, and that and Vlander did. And you know, what my foremost memory of Vlander, it's not the Roland Garros uh, final. It's it was those long, long battles against Lendl at the U.S. Open in the late 1980s. And one has to remember that there was a four-hour, 47-minute final that went four sets. If it had gone five sets, it, it, you know, it could have had a six-hour uh, final. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with uh, Vlander and Lendl just having those endless rallies, um, so you know the, the fact that Vlander could play with Lendl at, at the U.S. Open, the fact that he could, uh, you know, when Roland Garros is across, you know, different eras, beating uh, Vilas in '82, and then winning six years later in, in 1988, and then being Lendl in the middle of that in 1985. Uh, but of course, you know, the Australian Open was on. Uh, um, well, wait, 88 was the first year that the Australian Open moved to hardcourt. But nevertheless, the fact that Vlander was able to take that game 
and and when in, in the th- when each of the three non Wimbledon majors, you know, he was his game was obviously never a fit for for Wimbledon, but the fact that he cleaned up everywhere else in 1988 against the caliber of competition and the depth that existed in men's tennis at the time, I, I really think that's a, a that's a very under underrated achievement. 32 years later. No, it is. I think you you rightly hit on something very important. Uh, you know, I, as a fan, I remember that era, and uh, his achievement, uh, you know, is not as glorified. So you rightly put there whatever the reason is. So let's move this conversation into the 90s. And, uh, uh, you know, Jim Courier started the, and we talked about Andre Agassi, Jim Courier, Andre Gomez, you know, Mert last week. So Jim Courier was a dominant player. But uh, there's a file in 93 that I think, again, doesn't get talked about for the right reasons because it lacks star power. Jim Courier didn't have the star appeal of uh, John McEnroe or Andre Agassi or, you know, or the wholesomeness or achievement of Pete Sampras. But uh, Courier and Bruguera played a final, I think, which is the final for the ages. Of course, Nadal and Federer, these guys, and the recency bias make everything prior to this looks uh, very insignificant. But I think that's the final that, uh, to me, has some impact because Jim Courier was a very dominant player in those two years, if you both remember. And he was coming in Roland Garros uh, trying to do a hat-trick, had won 20 matches, had never lost to Bruguera. And Bruguera was like seen as the guy to replace the Manuelo Santanas and, you know, Emilio Sanchez never delivered at, at uh, Roland Garros. So Bruguera in 91 was a favorite. Then in 92 loses to Lendl in the first round, which was, I think, Lendl's last best clay win. And uh, he goes into this final and takes a two-time defending champion. And when temperatures reach, I think in the 90s, it was pretty hot that day. And there was a pretty emotional final. I was a big Jim Courier fan. And, you know, it's a, it's a pity as a young boy, you don't, enjoy these matches but then later years later you look uh, his historical perspective and you do a podcast one day and you say wow you know that's one of the most unsung matches and then to take this conversation forward he defended his title and then reached another final and loses losing to another three-time champion future three-time champion Gustavo Kyrton so Bruguera and Courier I think again gets overlooked if a Mats Vilander can get overlooked for lack of star power whatever reasons Matt just mentioned so what does Sergey Bruguera hold in terms of, you know, achievements? But that final, I think, I don't know what you, you guys remember of that final. That final, to me, is right up there before the Nadal years, one of the best finals, and it had some real impact. Had Courier won that, he would have been the first guy since Borg who would have done a hat-trick in French, and then, of course, being an American, he, you know, he would have the bragging rights forever that he won something three times in a row that Agassi maybe didn't. No, he didn't, and even in Australia. So if you look back at that match, I think it gets completely overlooked, but I would recommend anyone who's listening to this podcast uh, during this quarantine or, you know, as the world reopens, try to get that on YouTube. It's, it's a classic. Yes, yeah, Sakib, that's a, it's one of the, be- it's one of the be- best matches of the 90s and probably one of the highest quality matches in the open area as, as far as the French Open uh, final goes. And, you know, you and I had a podcast about the 1991 uh, French Open men's uh, draw uh last weekend i would recommend the listeners to to go and to, to go and listen to that and we talked about uh you know how hard courier and agassi were hitting the ball in the finals which is also which also touches back to what we were talking earlier about the changing style of the game that's when the hard hitting tennis came around and sergey Bruguera comes comes in and and, and basically takes out jim courier in five sets playing Jim Carrier's type of game. 
So, uh, you know, he, he beat Carrier in his A game after, after you know, facing a two-time uh, title holder. It's, it's a fantastic final. Uh, you know, the main the main insight I have, I, I don't remember a whole lot about the match in particular, uh, but but I can say that, you know, if you look at other Roland Garros finals, uh, not too much later uh, after 1993, uh, you know, like the Agassi Medvedev final in 1999, that went five. And then also the Coria Gaudio 2004 final that went five. But those were those were five set matches that were were five setters because they were bizarre and disjointed and uneven. You know, we've all we've right. seen enough five set matches to know that some matches are five setters because neither player can somehow separate or distinguish himself. You know, Isner Mahu at Wimbledon, for example, uh, falls into that category. So, the, you know, those those finals, Agassi Medvedev and Gaudio Coria, they were five setters because they were uneven. This. Brugera Courier was a five-setter because it was great, because both players were, were at a high level. So, you know, among the various Roland Garros finals that, that we've seen, this was, you know, a dramatic battle, and, but it was dramatic because it was great, not because the, the two players struggled for varying intervals. And a great, great uh, contrast there in that match was both players trying to run around the backhand and hit everything with their forehands. And uh, th- there's, th- there's phenomenal footwork going on in that match, too. Yeah, since we are there, how do you compare Bruguera's forehand to some of the other great forehands? Uh, it's a very different looking shot. Again, I don't have the technical nuance to even go there, so I'll leave it to you. Is it a very normal Spanish forehand or uh, a typical clay court forehand? Have you seen something similar? Oh gosh, it was similar in terms of another player. I can't really come up with a name now, but it's not. It's actually not that uncommon to to see players in the late '90s, mid '90s, late '90s, even Spanish players. I'm trying to think of another one, but where you know they open up their body and pull with the shoulder and and with the rest of the body with the arm following, and uh, it's kind of a swing around type of forehand, and uh, it's it's quite powerful. And uh, no Spanish players, uh, you know, did hit. Uh, did just even just thinking about the Spanish players, there are many of them in that time in the '90s, going into the early 2000s, that had that type of forehand. But Bruguera did it better than most of most most all of them, and uh, and then he could uh, really hit that ball hard, and uh, he could flatten it out too. But he needed a high ball to flatten it out. I don't think he flattened out that well on the on the low balls. But it's a, it's a it's a fierce forehand. It's a fierce forehand. So let's take this conversation again, uh, free-flowing, as I said, forward. So any players, both of you, think, uh, like what Matt had asked uh, Murd earlier in the show, who would have won or who did not win, anyone, any standout performers that uh, could have benefited from a slightly different generation or just even at that their generation, they were just unlucky on the men's side. Matt, you want to go first? Anyone in Roland Garros can be from any era. Uh one doesn't immediately leap to mind. I mean, you know, like Andy Murray, he evolved late on clay. So, you know, you'd have to displace him many years, not just four or five on clay. Uh, So, you know, one example doesn't, doesn't leap strongly to mind. Um, And especially since, in the mid to late 1990s, you, know, you had so many different 
finalists, so many different matchups uh, in the championship match. So in other words, a lot of players had the chance to win something. Um, so you know what? Hey, hey, it just came to mind. Nikolai Davidenko, if, if he had, if he had, if he had been five years earlier, you know, but, you know, cause he made the, uh, 2005 semis and lost to Mariano Puerta. So you, if you put Davidenko five years earlier, he grabs a few French Opens, no doubt. Right, do you want to take uh, take your view on this? Uh, yeah, I, 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 Matt is right. This is a tough one to come up with because you can easily come up with three or four names from the Rafael Nadal years, but that would be the easy cop out, right? But uh, but I would have loved to actually to to bring up the reverse point, since you're saying this is a free-flowing conversation, I'm wondering what, how Gustavo Quartin would have fared had he been around five or six years later. You know, he won, uh, he won 90, 1997, 2000, and 2001, and you put his best years, his best four or five years, and you moved them up to, to the year late 2000s. How would he have done against Rafael Nadal? I, I would have I liked to know that. You know, you kind of... Uh read my uh, thoughts because I was going to bring Gustavo Kiertan and Juan Carlos Ferreira. If you look at both men, their trajectories before the Nadal years, they both were playing their prime and they were, there was a couple, there was a two year period when they played five setters in, I think in Rome and Roland Garros in the split. And I was very excited. I loved the Ferreira forehand. My dad was a big Guga fan. So we were really gearing up for this rivalry. And then of course, Ferreira, uh, you know, only wins in France once. This is one of the weird stats. If somebody goes and tells me in 2003 that this is this last French Open, of course, we don't know how good Nadal's going to be. But chickenpox, you know, hampered his career. And Gustavo Kirtan had a bad hip surgery, and he was never the same. So Gustavo Kirtan wins his first French Open in 97 when he's, I think, 18. And he doesn't win any after 2001. So some of these streaks are just ridiculous and just makes you appreciate the yeah. longevity of Nadal and Djokovic and Federer and so many of these guys even more because some of these other guys, like to Matt's early point, uh, Guillermo Coria, I mean, who knows what would have happened with him had he won that year. I'm not saying, you know, they can beat Nadal, but again, the competition would have been even uh, even more tremendous if a healthy Kirtan, healthy Ferrero, healthy Coria, Roland Garros would have been heavenly. Nadal still probably would have reigned supreme, but sure. you don't know if you want to go hypothetical what would have happened. Well, it's not, it's not just Nadal, right? I mean, the, 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 of course, he, won, he wins all the titles, but how would they have fared against Nadal and Federer, who were in the finals of almost every French Open uh, title match You know, for, from 2005 to 2011 or 12? They played four or five finals against each other, or at least they, you know, Federer at least made it to the semis. I'm just curious. You know, Gusta, Guga at his best, um, you know, Bruguera at his best, and, and even Ferrero, just like you said, had they come in several years later into that Nadal-Ferrero era, would they have been, would they have ended up like Thomas Burdich and David Ferrer with zero titles? Or would they have actually bro- broken through, you know, Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal at the French? Um, that'd be a curious question we'll never hear the answer to. Maybe the listeners can pour in when they listen to this podcast and throw in some names. So uh, if you want to wrap this up, I'll throw another question because it's very seldom all three of us get together. So how about attacking players? The McEnroe's, the Sampras, the Edbergs, the Beckers, uh, the Rafters, the Henmans. Who impressed you most in the French Open? Mert, if you want to go first and then Matt, you can go and then I'll wrap with my thoughts. 
Okay, I'm going to go with two really early names here because, uh, you know, you just mentioned two names, actually. Uh, Patrick Rafter and Tim Henman, who, in my, in my mind, miraculously made it to the semifinals of French Open, both. Uh, to me, that's, uh, you know, playing that kind of, that style tennis in the late 1990s, early 2000s, making it to the semis of the French Open is, is, is phenomenal. I mean, you know, with, with their style of play, because nobody was winning at the French Open by then with, with, with serving and volleying. And uh, so I'm going to go a lot. You know, another guy that could uh, play an impressive game uh, was Yevgeny Kafelnikov. But I'm going to go much earlier. You know, you, you, your question was, who were the attacking players that, that uh, impressed you the most? Believe it or not, I caught Adriano Panate play in the late 70s. I, I got to watch him live a couple of times and on TV many times. And this guy played an incredible spectacular i would say not incredible but spectacular type of attacking style player and he's the only guy to be, be on board at the french open he could serve and volley he could attack drive his forehand all with a wooden racket uh his touch was was dead was deadly he could hit drop shot from anywhere on the court and his slice was stayed very low so that's the first attacking player i'd mentioned and the next attacking player uh, that uh, that i thought the last one, in fact, to win the French Open, playing an all-attack type of style, type of game, is Yannick Noah in 1983. Uh, you know, he beat Lendl in four sets, I believe, in the quarterfinals, and uh, I can't remember who he beat in the semis. I think he beat Roger Vasselin, who upset Connors the, the round before, and then he beat Mats Willander in the final, uh, 6-2, 7-5, 7-6, and he did it all serving and volleying and slicing with that backhand and coming in on just about everything, and he was so athletic that he was almost impossible to pass at the net, and uh, he wanted playing the, uh, the, playing the serving volleyer, the natural uh, attacker, and net hugger style of tennis, which, is, which today is unfathomable. unfathomable. I'm gonna I'm gonna say Yannick Noah as well, but not for any of the reasons Mert listed. I mean, there are great reasons, but I'm just gonna emphasize something else, Sakib, and that is simply that you know we've seen both men and women, French players really struggle with the burden of trying to win the Roland Garros championship. Uh, we saw it more recently with Kristina Mladenovic. Uh, on the women's side, also Amelie Moresmo memorably failed, you know, in much the same way that Samantha Stoser, you know, struggled to play at the Australian Open. Uh, you know, it's been a burden to play at your home nation major for a lot of players and especially French players. So just the simple fact that Yannick Noah shouldered that pressure uh, and was able to carry it all the way through, you know, Henri Leconte made the 88 final. But Vlander stopped him. So for um, Noah to beat Vlander in the '83 final, when Vlander was going for back-to-back, that that that's a really impressive accomplishment. Not just you know because of the uh, triumph of a flowing attacking game on clay, but my point of emphasis dealing with the pressure of being a French player at Roland Garros. It's a very unique moment in tennis history. No, indeed it is. Uh, then uh, Le Contre into the final was quite magical. So I'll just go out on a limb and, you know, speak like a true prodigy here. And definitely nothing takes away when you win the whole thing. But of all the attacking players, uh, I think uh, as a Becker fan, I would just throw this out. Making three French semis is not an easy feat. McEnroe made one final. Edberg made a couple of quarters in a final. So I think Becker's record 
it's a it's a stat that he's never won a clay final. I think gets overlooked. I think he's a very solid clay court player. The only irony is in '90s he only played I think three French Opens, and then you know he retired in '97, missed a couple of injuries. But if you look at his trajectory, losing to Michal Panfosh in a 86 quarters, then make semis in 87, lose to Willander, no bad loss. 89 was the one that got away because his rivalry with Edberg is legendary. But uh, Chang was waiting in the final. That's You never know what would have happened. Becker never lost to Chang in a tennis match. But, you know, Edberg was a more deserving winner. So uh, I, I think how this plays out uh, in each era is pretty special. But I think uh, Becker's record, which is a blemish, if you look at his other clay finals, losses to Mancini, Bruguera, Muster, those are not... You know, those are household names if you were following the clay court tennis in the 90s. So he gets overlooked. He was a pretty stubborn player. Probably didn't serve in volley a lot. That's why maybe he lost some of those close matches. But I think for an attacking player, his resume, I think, gets a beating when, in fact, it's a pretty decent one in French. If you look, making three semis in like five or six years of play. Yeah, Sakib, you just uh, mentioned uh, the great dilemma that uh, I think also Matt touched on earlier when talking about the 1984 final. You know, I, I just mentioned Yannick Noah being the last guy to, you know, being an all-out attacker, serving volleyer, slice that backhand, come to the net, not don't stay at the baseline uh, uh, type of player. And, you know, it just goes to show you, Makara almost beat Lendl playing that exact same style of game in that 1984 final. I mean, Makara was taking Lendl's first serves early and coming in behind. And he almost pulled it off, but he couldn't. You know, Stefan Edberg against Michael Chang in 1989 uh, played, you know, Edberg is known for being an attacker, an attacker, and he couldn't pull it off against Chang. And, and uh, you know, we didn't mention Andres Gomez, who's not an all-attack, all-out attack type of player like those. But in that final against Agassi, he did, uh, he did go for his forehand quite a lot. But again, I mean... Both your point about Becker and going back to Matt about the reverberations of the 1984 final, that's another one too. That was maybe the last chance that an all-out attacker had to win the French. Okay, so I think we covered uh, what you know we, we wanted to cover uh, in a very scattered kind of a way because this was not planned, but in a way, you know, I'm sure it's a good listening experience because everybody poured in their thoughts. So before we put a final wrap on this, any thoughts uh, that were not covered, uh, Matt? Uh, you want to give a have a final word? Well, just that as we contemplate, you know, what the world might have been like if we had a French Open this week. Uh, I just think it's, uh, it, you know, it's it's a it's a wish for me that Nadal and Djokovic do play one more time at, at the French because if Djokovic gets that chance, you know, and, and again, this is this is a conversation we've had the past few years when previewing the French Open, that if Djokovic could beat Nadal on Chatrier in a final, you know, that's like the one thing that he hasn't done pretty much, uh, you know, to this point. It's something that, you know, Federer was never able to do. So as we contemplate what, what the world might be like with a 2021 French Open, I hope we get to see another Nadal-Djokovic final. And that's not to say that it wouldn't be great to see Stan Wawrinka or Stefano Tsitsipas or Alexander Zverev, having them make a French Open final would also be great. So I'm not rooting for or against certain players, but just in terms of considering history, which we have done on this particular podcast episode, uh, contemplating another Djokovic-Nadal final, it it might be, no hyperbole, the biggest match in tennis history. 
Um, yeah, Matt, great point. And, and kind of along those lines, and I'll ask you guys a question, very short question, and, and listeners can actually answer this too, maybe on Twitter or they can to get in touch with you, Sakib. I'd be curious to know. The last uh, French Open final without Rafa, Novak, or Roger was in 2004. And I'm just curious, when is the next French Open final on the men's side that we're going to see that's not going to have any of those three names in it? Is it to 2021 already, or are we going to have to wait uh, another five years? So that, that, that's a question that I have. And Do- Dominic Team's the guy who's going to bust it up, most likely. If, if, if anyone does, it's most likely to be him. Yes. Yeah, but you're saying uh, all th- all three, n- none of the three will be there, right? Yes, I'm. I'm saying none of the three will be in the finals. Yes. So Dominic t- Dominic team versus X Y Z, but it cannot be Rafa, Novak, or Roger. Twenty twenty two. Yes. So probably Team Zverev would would probably be the matchup. I'd say most people would project if you gave them the hypothetical of which two players would be in a non big three. Roland Garros final. That would be my guess. Okay. What year, Matt? I'm putting you on the spot. 2023. All right. Okay. That's, that's reasonable. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll see what the, what the listeners think. I mean, definitely not, definitely not 2021 because Nadal and Djokovic are going to be so rested. It's true. Could be 2022. Uh, Sitsipas Murray. Who knows? Let's see. How that plays out. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So on that note, I think uh, uh, we can put a wrap on this show. Uh, thank you, Mert uh, and Matt, uh, taking time out uh, to record this show. Uh, ideally, we would have, you know, loved to talk about what was going on in the French Open world. But then again, uh, I want to wish you both and everyone who listens the best of health. And let's hope some normalcy returns and, and our thoughts with everyone in the political scene that, you know, prevails in the United States. Uh, currently thanks for listening to tennis with an accent we'll be back uh next week with another show bye for now <laughs>